I'm so blessed to, um, to be able to know these guys and to go along on stuff like that and, and see them take their next steps. I can't, as we were um, looking for the next mission trip that we were going to take, I can't think of one objective that we had, prayer request that wasn't met or exceeded on that trip. It was really, it was really great. Um, I'm really, really proud of them. You guys should be too. Thank you for helping send them. I want to tell you some of the things that we learned when we were there. It, it was hard work. Um, we were working directly with a local church, and uh, it was great to, to be able to do that. At first, I was a little let down, and then I thought, no, really, this is the best thing that we could do would be to help this church. You know, we could just be in and out in a week and probably have minimal impact, but to go and, and help this church who has lasting impact in this area was, was really the, the best way to go. As we were there, we, we met with different uh, leaders in the church. One of them told us that really the best way to describe these, these Navajos are to call them refugees. That uh, in about the 70s, the government came in and took the coal underneath their land and distributed them then out across the, uh, the area. And so there's people that, they're just, they're just pockets all over the places. You drive all over the, the reservation, you just see there was a house there and there, and there wasn't really um, a grouping of people. And, and part of that is because there's, there's not any water. Most of these houses don't have water. And we started to wonder, how, how does this work? And we noticed that there was a huge number of unemployment. We didn't know that really anybody had any jobs. And as we talked about that, the people would say, well, what they do is um, one person works on cars, and so they just go and they fix cars around. Another person gathers water, and they kind of deliver water around. They would, as a community, they would support one another's needs, but there, there really wasn't any jobs sort of, sort of to speak. We were talking to different people. They'd say their, their biggest obstacles were depression, alcoholism, drugs. As you can imagine, in, in that kind of environment, um, you know, we're built to do something, all of us. We're, we're built to have a purpose, and so when we don't have a job, and it's hard to figure out what our purpose is, we're, we get a little bit aimless, and, and we saw that in this, this particular area. One other thing that really stood out to me is we, we drove to the capital of Navajo Nation, which is Window Rock. So we were driving through there, we drove by this youth detention center, and it is the largest youth, youth detention center that I've ever seen. Uh, it, it, was, it was really, really big. And you start to gather this, this wow, this is, this is pretty desperate. This is, this is bad. You saw the, the testimony of the, the students in here, and, and, and their hearts were, were crushed a little bit by, wow, this is happening in our world. This is just a few states away. Um, do you come across stuff like that? Do you, are there issues that kind of pop up in your mind and you go, wow, that is, that's a big issue. I mean, this is, just, this is just one issue, right? There's lots of things out in our world, and, and there's so many of those things that sometimes I think we, we kind of get a little bit anesthetized to how big they are and, and what could we possibly ever do about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? For me, it was just a couple of years ago, we took a group from here down to Salem, Oregon, and we were on a missions trip down there, and they took us into this coffee shop. It had been converted to, um, to a Christian coffee shop. Before that, it was a nightclub in downtown Salem. And as we're walking through, they, they showed us that right here, this is where they used to take shots, you know. What they would do is they would, um, they would say, hey, the police are coming, and all the miners that were in the room, they would say, hey, go down in here, we'll hide you. Well, what happened is they would go through these doors, they would go down a tunnel, they would slide down into a room behind a locked door, and now those kids were in human trafficking. 
literally two blocks from the state capitol. And the authorities had tried for years to, to get in there. They knew something was going on, but they just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. As we're there with our, with our teens from here in that room, my heart was crushed. And they shared with us that Seattle is the second largest port for human trafficking. The average age for human trafficking is 12 to 14. The average lifespan is seven years of life. Some of these issues in the world just wreck our hearts. And it's so big, and you say, what in the world can I do about this issue? I remember one time coming against this with, with my wife. We became aware of an issue, and at the end, we, we were just, just in silence. What do we do? What do we do? I remember the weight started to lift a little bit, and I came back to some basics. God is still God. God knows about these issues. I am not God. I don't have the mental capacity or the strength or the connections or the resources to wipe any of these issues out. But I believe this. I believe that God's plan to work in this world is for you and I to do small things together as the church. We are called to love God and love the people that are in our proximity. And when we do that, we help them to love God and love the people in their proximity. And this grows and it grows and it grows. And those big things get taken down the way that God wants them to be taken down. This summer, we're in a series called Wildfire. And what we're talking about in Wildfire here is, is when the church does what it's supposed to do, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it can be scary, but it is awesome. Today, we're going to take a little break from specifically the book of Acts and, and look somewhere else. Now, if you're going to understand the book of Acts, now I can't believe the other speakers let me take this because I think this is, this is like the key thing. If you're going to get the book of Acts, I think you've got to understand this word. Okay, so nerd alert. I'm going to talk to you about Greek here for just a second. And I don't want you to think that I know tons of Greek. I know like seven words. But, but this is one of them. <laughs> and just in case you don't ever learn anything in church, this is from an old pastor, Ben Cross. Thank you, Ben Cross. I'm sure you're on YouTube right now. And, um, and, and he, he taught this room. The word is homothumadon. Say it with me. Homothumadon. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Homothumadon is actually two words put together, and it's rushing along in unison. Rushing along in unison. Homothumadon is used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of them are in the book of Acts. If you know anything about the book of Acts, there's these beautiful pictures of how the church did what it was supposed to do. They gave up their possessions. They joined together. They had one heart, one mind, one purpose, and they changed their world. It's exciting. It's beautiful. It's the way it should be. They got it. I think they got three things. Number one, they understood that it's all about Jesus. All of the Old Testament, all of human history led up to that point in time, and they, they came clear. Oh, it's always been about Jesus. It's always been pointing people to Jesus. They got it. And then when Jesus died, he set up the body of Christ, the representatives to the world. 
of who Jesus is, the church. And they started to live that. We are the representatives of Jesus to the world. And so they lived it. They changed their thinking. They changed their actions. They changed their emotions. They got in the line with what the church is supposed to be. It's beautiful. And I think the last thing there is just that they understood. As long as they had breath, as long as they had life, they were meant to serve. That's what their purpose was. All right, so today we're going to jump out of Acts to another story that I think illustrates when a group of people get together and they get one heart and one mind, they can do some pretty incredible things. This book is one of my favorites, the book of Nehemiah. Turn there, if you will. Now, if you know the story, if you don't, I'm glad to be able to represent it to you today. The town of Jerusalem is in ruins. The community is struggling. It seems like the people are facing a crisis of faith uh, in an unpredictable future. Now, I think one of a couple of things is probably true about the people who are living here in Jerusalem during this time. (coughs) Either they'd lived in those conditions for so long that they didn't see how bad things were anymore, or they lived in those conditions for so long that they couldn't imagine how things would ever change. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's, 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 you know, we look back at, at Bible times or people in history and we go, they're so stupid. They're so silly. Why didn't they get it? Friends, I think we still do this same thing. I think it's easy for us to do this exact same thing. We look around at the conditions that have existed in our culture, in our community, and it's easy to just say, that's not going to change. That's impossible to solve. What could I possibly do about that? On the surface, Nehemiah's story tells us something that I think is really true. We can do more together. His, his goal couldn't have been done by one or a few. It needed an all-in kind of approach. But I think there's something else to see in Nehemiah, and that is this. When we do something together, it has the potential to affect how a generation sees God. Now, when I say affect how a generation sees God, what I'm talking about here is there are people who are in our community that they look at churches, they look at our church, and they say, how are you guys going to respond to this issue? When I say we can affect how a generation sees God, there's people from the outside who are watching. And I would say even further, there are people on the inside who are watching. Those of us who say we love God and serve God, they're watching us. When we do something together, it has the potential to affect how a generation sees God. Another one of the things that I love about Nehemiah is Nehemiah is a doer. I think Nehemiah's time and our time, there's a lot of talkers You know what I'm talking about? Anybody just love politicians? Sorry if you're a politician in the room. We love you. Um, but, But there's a lot of talkers. Anybody just Facebook? You know what I'm talking about? There's something about human nature. It's just really easy to complain about things and talk about things. And, well, this should change and that. And I know how to do it. But we need more people who step up and do something about it. Doesn't that just kind of get your heart going? Yeah, that's what we need. We need people to do something about it. Nehemiah was a doer. I love it. So as we get into the book of Nehemiah, one of the first things that we learn is Nehemiah names what is broken. Nehemiah 1.3. Nehemiah's story begins. Someone shows up in his story to tell bad news. Nehemiah's in Susa serving King Anaxerxes. And a messenger stops by and gives a candid report about the condition of Jerusalem. This is 5th century B.C. or B.C.E., if that's your thing. 
And he told Nehemiah what was happening in his hometown. And he explained this, verse 3. Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. His town is in ruins. Nehemiah heard this and his first response is to mourn and to fast and to pray. And that's what Nehemiah does for several days. He just sat in the knowledge that his people were in danger. Nehemiah is showing us something here that I think is easy to miss, so I don't want you to skip it. If we can't name the problem, then we can't fix the problem. Nehemiah sat there and he was able to wrap his mind around, my people are in danger. If we don't know what the problem is, we don't know how to fix it. I think sometimes we need to assess the situation and be honest about what's broken in our communities. Nehemiah became aware that his hometown was in trouble. His city was in poor condition. The people were vulnerable in a number of ways. Their security and their safety were threatened. The future existence was at stake. Every once in a while, we get disturbing news. And honestly, friends, I think it's what we do with that disturbing news that really establishes what our character is. How do we respond? As a church, we're not called to protect ourselves from the problems of the world. I'm going to make a suggestion here, and I don't, you don't have to agree with me. It's just a suggestion. If our church ignores the problems in our community, the problems that are happening in our community, then we forfeit our right to have influence in our community. If we ignore the problems that are happening in our community, then we give up our right to have influence in our community. If we ignore what's being broken around us, we give up credibility. And there, again, there's people who, who look at us and they say, you guys say that you, you know better. Nehemiah didn't ignore what was broken. He didn't excuse it. He probably could have managed this whole, this whole project from his ivory tower, but he didn't excuse it. He didn't sit back. He didn't wait for a miracle. I would say it's okay to expect God to show up and do big things. It's okay to expect that, but it's not okay to wait for it. We need to get involved. Nehemiah didn't wait for God to tell him what to do. He didn't wait for a miracle. Check out his prayer. He apologizes to God for the disobedience of his people. I love it when leaders do that, when they recognize that their problem is our problem. And he talks to God and he apologizes to God for the sins of the people. And then he reminds God of his promises. <laughs> and then his prayer, as you follow it, it starts to pick up a bit of a panicked tone as he's talking to God and he's kind of switching from mourning to you get this cadence in the prayer where he starts to realize that it's time to go and do something. Here's another inter interesting thing. He heard the report, he prayed, he realized that he should do something, and then he makes this simple statement. And it's so easy to miss, but I think it's important. Nehemiah says, and I was the cupbearer to the king. First of all, what I think is happening here is he's revealing who he's not. He's not a priest. He's not a spiritual leader. He's not an advisor to the king. He's not an ambassador. He's the cupbearer. He's saying who he's not. 
Don't miss this. Because sometimes I think that we think that our job description somehow changes our responsibility. Nehemiah is saying, I didn't have the job description to take care of this job, but I knew that I needed to do something about it. Friends, as the church, it is our responsibility to engage with a broken world. Not because it's our job description, but because we are God's people. Friends, we are the church. We are ambassadors of the Son of the living God. We represent the one who gave up his life for all of humankind. We are the best chance that the world has to learn who Jesus is. I don't know why God set things up this way. I want to ask him this question when we we get there. I, I might even argue that that was the best plan to involve us in that process. For whatever reason, God has decided that we are responsible to show the world who Jesus is. And Nehemiah got this. So Nehemiah starts to take action. He starts to leverage what he had. You and I are called to do the same thing. I believe that whatever we have, God has given those things to us to leverage in Jesus' name. We're supposed to leverage our status, our influence, our resources, our privilege, our knowledge, our connections, our finances. All of those things are given with a purpose. We are called to leverage whatever we have for the sake of those around us. Not because we're trying to be good people. Not because we're trying to show people, hey, look what I'm doing in Jesus' name. It's not because we're trying to be good people. It's because we are God's people. It's what we're supposed to do. Nehemiah risked his privilege, his position, his power, because he knew that his people were worth it. I'd also say that you can't expect to rebuild or restore anything without it having the potential to cost you personally. What our culture needs is more Nehemiahs. People who are not only willing to leverage what they have, but risk what they have to rebuild what's broken. Then Nehemiah did something else. After he appealed to the king, he gathered resources. He started to figure out what do the people in Jerusalem need. And then he does this. He actually left and he went to Jerusalem. He went to see the situation up close, roll up his sleeves, get a little dirty, get practical, get involved. He demonstrated a very powerful principle here. If you want to be the kind of leader that understands what's really going on, somebody who has lasting influence, then you need to go and see for yourself. Now, when I say if you want to be the kind of leader, I know some of you are like, oh, I don't want to be a leader. Cool. <laughs> Friends, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, you're called to be a leader. You may only be leading two or three or four people around you, but you are called to lead those people. And as a leader, for you to have influence, you've got to get up close and personal and see what the problems are. Go see for yourself. Proximity always changes your perspective. The closer you get to an issue, the more clarity you can see of what the problems are. The more of us that get close to the brokenness of our community, the more impact that we can have. Imagine just for a second, if we started to have this kind of clarity and focus, if we started to really think about what does this community need inside and outside of these walls, what do we need? What if enough of us were willing to get close to parents that have kids with special needs? 
Get close to people who are of a different color. Get close to people who don't share our views. Get close to people who are marginalized, who are below the poverty line, who are hurting because of injustice, who are facing impossible odds. If enough of us could get close to the brokenness of our community, then maybe we could get mobilized enough to do something about it. Friends, I believe the best way that we can affect change in our world is to work with young people. This is my two cents. You can push it off if you want. But I wholeheartedly believe that if you want to change the world, you have to focus on young people. As I'm not saying that, that older generations can't be changed, and I, I do think there's a need for that. But I think there's something that happens when a church gets behind the idea that we're going to focus on young people, and that's how we change the world. I would say this. I would love our church to continue to move into position on this idea, that we would give every single kid an adult who will show them who Jesus is. I don't know if you're close enough to the, to the issue to know this or not, but our community is full of kids who see brokenness everywhere they look. It's in their neighborhood. It's in our schools. It's in their homes. What if we started acting like this church is the best way that any kid has to experience God, God's love for them from a consistent and caring adult? The best way we can start rebuilding and rescuing our community, I believe, is to have a consistent leader in the life of every kid. There's no substitute in a kid's life for a consistent leader. There's a generation sitting in the wings. Just like back in Nehemiah's day, there are a generation sitting in the wings wondering how close we're going to get. We are the more disciplined. They are the less disciplined. They're watching and they're wondering how close are they going to come and get into my life. We can't expect them to come and pursue us. We need to go and pursue them. How far are we willing to go? Friends, if we do not engage the next generation, we will lose them. We will lose them. We'll just continue to grow old as a church. We can have influence inside these walls, but the next generation will walk away. Nehemiah's visionary speech to this group of people as he continues on, it's not very long. I, I love this. I don't know if this is the abridged version or what, but this is a great speech. Nehemiah 2.17. Nehemiah's visionary speech. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and then we will no longer be in disgrace. Here's the problem. Here's how we solve it. And the people replied, let's start rebuilding. And they began. Sometimes I think we have this fear of action because we think that it's just too complicated. <laughs> Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Let's do it. Now, if the Old Testament was written in Greek, I am pretty sure that that, that dinosaur, Homothumadon, I think that word would show up here because there's such clarity of mind and focus and purpose in these people. They got it. It's also interesting here, the group of volunteers. These were not skilled workers. 
uh, masons and construction workers. No, this was perfume makers, jewelry designers, preachers, politicians, merchants, a cupbearer. And they started working on these construction crews. There are a lot of people doing something that they didn't know how to do. They were not experts. But you know what? Sometimes you just have to do what you don't know how to do. When it's important, you don't wait. You just start doing it. I love the story of Nehemiah because so many people just did what needed to be done. Nehemiah didn't say, hang on, let me give you a number two pencil here. here here's a spiritual giftedness in inventory. I need everyone to take it so we can figure out where you fit in the org chart of our, of our organization. Um, there was no class to help everyone to discover their passions and talents. Nobody was standing around saying, um, you know, I'm just waiting for God to tell me where he wants me to go. They prayed as they were doing it. They learned how to do it as they were doing it. And why did they do that? Because they saw that their people were in danger. Evil was outside the gate. Their children were at risk. God's relationship with an entire generation was at stake. There was too much to risk to not do anything. Another thing, Nehemiah never once said that it was going to be easy. He called them to do something hard. In fact, it wouldn't be possible for one or a few to do. It needed to be an all-in effort to get it done. Friends, can you imagine what would happen in the hearts of a generation in our city if our church looked like this? If we really believed that our young ones were in danger. If we believed our families and our kids we're at risk. What if we had amazing clarity on how to rush along together with one heart and one mind to rescue a generation? One last thing I want you to look at from Nehemiah today. Nehemiah rallied this group just at the right time. It's in a turning point in the story. It happened at probably the most critical stage of, of this rebuilding of Jerusalem. They're about halfway through the construction process. Things start to unravel. People are getting tired. Everything started to pile up at once. There's verbal attacks, there's threats, there's skepticism, there's complaints, there's rumors. You can just, reading in the text, like, oh man, that must have been terrible. And Nehemiah does something genius. Here's how he describes the scene. 4.13 Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and their spears and their bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your families, for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. This was not a militarily, tactically sound thing for him to do. To put... Families, to put children, to put young people, to put unskilled fighters in the most vulnerable parts of the city. Can you imagine the emotion of this moment? Everybody knows that the enemy is planning on attacking. Everybody's ready to give up, but Nehemiah organizes them by their families and posts them in the gaps and says, Hey, remember what you're fighting for. 
In this one move, Nehemiah recast a vision in a way that was personal to every single person. It was no longer simply about a broken city. It was no longer about what was best for the community. It was no longer about demonstrating who God was. It was about your son and your daughter and your wife. He was saying, let's be clear at what's stake here if we don't join together and put a hole, uh, put a, stop this gap in the wall. Something else that's interesting. When the parents stood in the gap, the enemy didn't attack. I don't know if you've ever seen an angry mom. I have. When you put parents that they think their family's at risk in the gap, they fight hard. Here's the point. If our church could inspire every parent, every person to understand what's really at stake in the lives of our young people in our community, then I believe it'll change the momentum of this church. I believe it'll ultimately change this community. It'll change how our community sees our church. Don't miss what Nehemiah did here. I don't think it was an accident. Nehemiah leveraged the concern of parents about their kids to position them as champions of their faith. Nehemiah made parents the champions of the story. And everyone around them, parents, non-parents, children, everybody saw this as a focal point. Think about it. When Nehemiah asked parents to stand in the gap, he sparked their emotional awareness about what was at risk. He made them heroes in the hearts of their own children. He positioned them as leaders in the community. And he set them up to win. Anybody here not like to win? Winning feels good. People like to win. What if as leaders and parents, we decided that we could help the community best win by presenting our church as a place where families win? So, in Nehemiah, together the people of Jerusalem rebuilt the walls and the gates of the city in 52 days. Mind-blowing. This was at the, the astonishment of the skeptics, the amazement of the leaders inside, and possibly most importantly, to the wonder of a generation of kids who were watching from the inside. Here's three things that happened once they built the wall. Number one, those outside the walls, the skeptics, they changed what they believed about God. Nehemiah writes in chapter 6, verse 16, When all of our enemies heard about this, the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The outside is watching. And when awesome things happen, they go, there's something about that that doesn't make sense. They, somehow they have help accomplishing that. Number two, those inside the walls changed how they listened to God. Nehemiah 8.3, Ezra the priest opened the scriptures and read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Those inside the walls changed how they listened to God. Now I want to point out something here. That is a really long church service. Daybreak to noon. Anybody want to switch to that pattern? No. And the book of the law it probably isn't the most interesting thing to listen to for that amount of time. 
But when you are a part of God's mission, and you're in the trenches, and you're face-to-face with the problem, it changes your hunger for God. You want to hear as much as you can about our God. Number three, a generation changed how they worshipped God. Down in verse 17, there's a statement about how they worshipped. Now, I want to preface this by saying, you know how sometimes, because it's the Bible and sometimes the language and sometimes it's history and it feels a little bit old, it's hard to see emotion in the Bible. Now, read this passage. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this. And their joy was very great. I think this was a big party. Friends, when you see face-to-face God working in the lives of people, you see, see hearts change, you see people take next steps, there's just something that just bubbles up and you got to, Woo! Let's party! Our God is good! And I think their worship was intense. I think it was unhindered. I think it changed how they worshiped their God. Friends, when we work together, like they work together, it can change how a generation sees God. This is what the book of Nehemiah teaches us. That's what we want for this church. We want to work together in such a way that it changes how people see God. Now, to be clear, there's lots of ways to help out here. You can walk out these doors, turn to the left, there's a table there. There's lots of things that can be done. And I would just go further and say, lovingly, if you're not serving somewhere, you're probably not growing. But I'll go even further. If you ask me, there's no greater way to affect change in this community than to work with children and youth. You have the opportunity to change a kid's understanding of God. By becoming a consistent leader in the life of a kid, you change the way they think about God, the way they think about their faith. We can't do it without people like you. We need you to help fill the gap. Help us change our community by influencing our kids, by empowering our parents, and leveraging whatever you have for Jesus. Let me finish with this. Church, we're better together. Not alone, together. One heart, one mind, one mission. This community needs more churches who, like the early church, got their act together, got their focus clear, one heart, one mind, and figured out how to best represent Jesus to their broken world. We can do more together. Let's pray.